0: the intent of the devops movement is to get organizations moving faster and more efficiently by breaking down silos and improving communication gene kim's book the phoenix project illustrated this by telling the fictional story of a company adopting a devops mentality and although that book was fiction gene is an experienced engineer he's worked as a founder and cto of tripwire a software company that makes security and compliance automation software in his new book, *The DevOps Handbook*, Gene presents a practical companion to the Phoenix Project. Together with his co-authors, Gene has written a guide for how to move an organization towards DevOps. And in this episode, we explore some of the topics from the book. I really enjoyed reading his book. Um, there's a lot of uh, great advice and suggestion, concrete suggestions for how to move towards DevOps. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Gene Kim is the author of The Phoenix Project and, more recently, The DevOps Handbook. Gene, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Uh, Jeff, so great to be here. I've loved so many of your episodes, and uh, I should actually say I'm the co-author of The Phoenix Project and uh, the upcoming DevOps Handbook.
0: <laughs> right, definitely. Um, but there, if there is one person who is most closely associated with the term DevOps, it is probably you. How did you become the standard bearer of the DevOps movement?
1: Yeah, I, I think that was. Uh, in fact, I would say, uh, you know, I think there are a whole bunch of other names that I would equally associate with DevOps, and you know, actually, you know, incidentally, those are also the co-authors on the DevOps Handbook. I mean, it's Jez Humble, uh, it's John Willis, it's uh, Patrick Dubois. and so it's been, it's been it's been such an honor and a privilege to be able to uh, work with them over the last five and a half years uh, on the DevOps Handbook. But uh, you know, to your question, I think the reason why so many people um, May associate me with the DevOps movement is I think it's because of the Phoenix Project, you know, that came out uh, in 2013. So that's a novel about IT DevOps and helping organizations win. You know, that's the subtitle of the book. But uh, you know, that was really uh, it's a novel about uh, you know a head of operations uh, who finds himself basically in the way of everything that the business cares about. You know, it's project delivery, it's uh, operations, it's security and compliance. It's about uh, you know the ability for uh, the company to execute on their strategy. Um, and it was really inspired by uh, my favorite book that's influenced my professional career more than any other book, and that's called The Goal. Uh, it, it was a book written by Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt, uh, in the 1980s, and it was a novel Um about a manufacturing plant manager who had to fix his cost and due date issues in 90 days, otherwise they would shut the plant down. And so that book's been integrated into almost every MBA curriculum, uh, you know, these days. And, you know, when I read that book 20 plus years ago, there was just no doubt in my mind that, you know, the le- those lessons were relevant to the work that we do in technology but I love the idea of the novel right because it allows us to show the problems this downward spiral that happens to developers testers ops infosec and ultimately you know the organization that we serve and uh, you know and I think the goal was really to show that the problem is bigger than just Dev and ops it's really in the case of the Phoenix project right it's uh actually the biggest problem that the entire organization must solve you know even to survive let alone win in the marketplace.
0: Mm -hmm. Indeed and you know the DevOps handbook you say early on in the in the book that this is meant to be a complement to the Phoenix project. How does the DevOps handbook complement the Phoenix project? Are there things that people misunderstood about the Phoenix project or were there points that you wanted to just expound upon that were just touched on in the Phoenix project?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I would say the most precise answer would be it's really meant to be the non fiction prescriptive guide, you know, that really describes, you know, how did that, you know, unicorn team inside of uh, Parts Unlimited in the Phoenix Project, how did they do what they did, right? They went from kind of, uh, you know, everything was screwed up, couldn't keep applications up, they were late, insecure, not compliant, and so forth. You know, how did they, you know, affect this amazing transformation, you know, where they were suddenly using the same principles and patterns that we would typically associate with, you know, the Googles, Amazons, Facebooks of the world. Um, and increasingly it's not just the unicorns, it's horses as well, right? Large complex organizations that have been around for decades or even centuries. Uh, and that really came out of um, the, you know, experience reports that were being shared at a conference I run called the DevOps Enterprise Summit that where, you know, we get leaders of, you know, Organizations like Target, Nordstrom, Raytheon, uh, Nationwide Financial, uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, Barclays Bank, right? You know, uh, having them share those transformation stories. And I can't, I, I think it's Im- impossible for me to overstate how much I learned, you know, from, uh, from that, uh, listening to their journeys. And that's really sort of the, what really forms, I think, you know, what makes the DevOps Handbook so exciting to me is it shows off 40 case studies of, you know, how Organizations are transforming. And, you know, they don't sound so much like Google and Amazon, but really all those other organizations that have been around for decades or even over a century.
0: Yeah, and you have been tracking this industry for longer than I have, but I feel like there is a palpable shift, uh, I certainly felt it this year, in how seriously older companies are taking their software stack these days. Like, you know, obviously, you mentioned State Farm, Under Armour, or I, I don't think you mentioned Under Armour. But there are, uh, you know, I think I've heard Under Armour mentioned in this conversation. You know, General Electric, and these companies are all saying they're they're shifting to saying we are a software company that happens to make insurance prod products or clothing or breakfast cereal or whatever whatever they're making, and and. and so what are the concrete ways in which these companies are making the shift?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so we're going to our third year of the DevOps Enterprise Summit. And it's – it's uh, for me, it's just the most exciting kind of transformation afoot because, you know, I think, you know, maybe to oversimplify, right, to um, – you know, I, I think these transformations are much easier when you're a Google, Amazon, Twitter. When you're in you know, LinkedIn, you know when the company survival is at stake, and it's just obvious that you have to be, you know, you have to put these practices into place to even compete in the marketplace. I think that argument is uh, just as valid, but uh, I think much harder to uh, win, right, and convince other people when you're in a uh, large bank, when you're in a uh, an insurance company, uh, if you're like Raytheon and your, uh, you know, ma- writing the software that controls ground control stations that control satellites. But, you know, uh, I think the business imperative is absolutely as urgent. You know, the, what we found, uh, I worked with Jez Humble, one of my DevOps co, uh, handbook co authors, uh, along with Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Puppet. You know, over the last four years, we benchmarked, uh, to over 26,000 respondents, um, in the technology value stream. This is over four years, And, and we know now that, you know, these high performing technology organizations are massively outperforming. They're non-high-performing peers. They're doing 200 times more frequent deployments. You know they have 2,500, fa- uh, 2,500 times faster lead times from code commit to running in production. You know they have three times uh, less failures in production, and they have 200 times faster mean time to repair. They have better organizational performance. You know their employees are twice as likely to recommend their workplaces to friends as a great place to work. You know it's just all these uh, amazing. Statistics, right? Now oh, the other one that you know we found was that you know for those organizations that gave us a stock ticker symbol, uh, the high performers had 50% higher market cap growth over three years. So I think concretely, you know, I think what Target, Nordstrom, uh, Macy's, these are all retailers or manufacturers like Raytheon, um, uh, government agencies. They're all saying that. In order to get to market quickly, uh, and preserve the levels of service and to be able to experiment and win in the marketplace, you know, we need to be doing the same things as the unicorns. Um, and yeah, you know, by the way, with the ones, the conference that we did in London was so interesting to me because some of those experience reports came from organizations like Barclays Bank. So they were founded in 1634. Uh, they, we, they had a, the organization called HMRC, Her Majesty's uh, Revenue Collection Agency, sort of like our version of the IRS. They were founded in the year 1200. <laughs> so even though they don't have code that goes that far back, there are certainly traditions and maybe even procedures and policies that go that far back. And so it's just so exciting to see that, you know, even those organizations are transforming and doing just amazing, heroic things. And, and that's really kind of the, um, uh, uh, the, the patterns that we wanted to capture in the DevOps handbook.
0: Before we get into uh, tactics and specific things that you do within DevOps and what you talk about in the DevOps handbook, it's kind of a semantic discussion or a couple semantic discussions that I, I, I would want to tackle here. Um, I've had conversations with my friend Robert Blumen, who runs Software Engineering Radio, which is what I copied to start Software Engineering Daily, um, and you know he. We, 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 we I, I remember I did a week of shows about DevOps and there was contention around whether DevOps is an actual thing. Like, can you attach a definition to it? Uh, is it more of a movement? Because there are, you know, also should there be people who are defined as DevOps engineers, or does that imply that you're missing the point? Because DevOps is a movement that should be uh, should overtake the entire organization. I mean, what is what is the correct semantic uh, diagnosis here?
1: Yeah, I, I'm very comfortable um, putting forth, and this is what we put in the DevOps handbook, right? That really DevOps is uh, the set of um, it's the architecture. It's the technical practices and the cultural norms that enable this amazingly fast flow of work from dev through test into operations and information security so that we can quickly deliver value to customers but also preserve world-class reliability, security, and stability. Um, and, you know, incidentally, it's also those same practices and norms um, that allow us to have, uh, you know, Incredibly high employee satisfaction to win in the marketplace, uh, but also that allows small teams uh, to be able to work independently, so they can develop, test, and deploy value to customers, you know, without having to you know communicate and coordinate with you know hundreds or maybe even thousands of other engineers in the organization. And so, you know, I'm really describing the outcomes. Um, And, you know, really haven't specified what those practices are. But, you know, we do know from the benchmarking, you know, that spans 24,000, you know, actually 26,000 respondents plus, right, that, you know, we we can say with certainty there are, you know, probably 10 practices uh, that, you know, predict performance. It's version control, especially, you know, by operations. It's automated testing. Uh, It's... um, you know high trust cultural norms uh it's proactive monitoring the production environment it's uh visual- visualization of work uh and controlling work in process you know we we know that there are you know these uh uh these practices and uh, that you know when we see them we can say oh yeah that that you can't do devops without it um so and i think you know in the devops handbook we use the three ways to really kind of uh be the set of three principles from which you can derive all of these observed behaviors uh, that we see in high performers that allow them to get these amazing outcomes. Uh, so you know, I'm very comfortable, you know, uh, addressing it at that level without actually talking about the specific practices. Uh, and in terms of like a DevOps engineer, I, I guess I, I'm I'm okay with putting DevOps in. You know, title, because I mean, you know, we know that there's this incredible mismatch between supply and demand. You know, every organization, whether it's a DevOps enterprise or velocity or DevOps days, right? They're always saying we're hiring, right? So, uh, you know, what's uh, on the, on the supply side, right? To put DevOps in, you know, Somewhere in your title, you know, I think is a good way to make sure that, you know, uh, we can match supply and demand. But, you know, I do agree that, you know, I think DevOps is really a more of an umbrella of a philosophy and really to really specify a job role, right? We do need to talk about is it ops engineering? Is it uh, automation engineering? Is it, uh, uh, in test automation? Is it a developer in a specific stack?
0: Um, and, and what I'm really curious about is how these organizations typically adopt devops because i can imagine a number of scenarios one scenario i imagine is you get that first team that maybe has a devops mentality or a devops engineer and then that team starts to outperform other teams and people start to say what is that team doing differently and then it sort of spreads virally throughout the company the other thing i can imagine is somebody from on high in the organization says uh okay, we need to make this shift, and then there's just this big tectonic shift. So how how does it typically happen? Is it like a in these big organizations? Is it is there this big overhaul or is this uh, incremental shifting? Does it happen top down or bottom up? What are the the commonalities you see? Yeah,
1: you know, it, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think um, we really didn't know, and that was one of the reasons why we did the DevOps Enterprise Summit. You know, I think as uh, learners and uh, leaders, especially. We tend to learn less from theory and especially from just listening to people say, here's what I think everybody should do. You know, I think we learn more concrete when it's more concrete saying, uh, you know, here's what we did. Here's what the outcomes were. Here's what happened. Here's what we learned. And that's why every one of the talks at the DevOps Enterprise Summit was in a very specific format. It was a 30-minute experience report format where they said, here's our organization, here's our industry, uh, here's who I am and where I fit in the org chart, here's where we started and why, um, here's the business problem we are trying to solve, here's what we did, here's our outcomes, here's what happened, here's what worked, didn't work, and here's the challenges that still remain. And, you know, I think the, uh, several things become very evident, uh, especially spanning the nearly 200 speakers over the last, you know, three years, uh, is that, in terms of where it comes from, you know, the top title of the presenters was Director of Operations, followed by Chief Architect, followed by Director of Development. So I think that was a very different, uh, that was a surprise because it was very different from the, 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 I think, the typical narrative that we convinced ourselves that DevOps really comes from frustrated development groups who you know are so tired of waiting for ops that they go straight to the cloud you know instead the people really leading these charges tend, typically are the operations people who are saying there has to, you know, our goal is to make developers more productive and we need some sort of self-service platform in a way that we can get repeatable environments and so forth uh, The other thing that I find so fascinating is that uh, uh, 25% of the DevOps enterprise speakers have been promoted over the last three years many more than once. Uh and, and so I think this is really uh essentially a way is, is validation that the organization sees that they've created value for their organizations and they're being put in a role where they can make a larger difference, often being put in this staff role outside of the business units to essentially being chartered to elevate the state of the practice across the entire organization and that could include, you know, thousands, maybe even over ten thousand, uh engineers spanning dev tests and operations and InfoSec. So yeah, I think one of the best books on this that was actually recommended to me by Rob Cummings at uh, Nordstrom. Uh, it was called *The Other Side of Innovation*, and it was so important. It was such a startling book to me because it simultaneously explained, you know, all the f- successes I've seen as well as the failures, and you know, and it shows that you know DevOps is really kind of a subset of you know disruptive innovation. Uh, and so, Dr. Govindarajan and Dr. Chris Trimble, they uh, at the Dartmouth School of Business, and you know they studied the first BMW electric car project. They studied the uh, first small tractor line at John Deere, uh, the first digital operations at, New- at the Wall Street Journal, and essentially the the problem they were trying to. Uh, find better answers to was that, you know, how do you introduce very disruptive practices into large successful organizations? And, you know, they put forth this model saying that when you are an organization, you know, billions of dollars in revenue, spending decades of, you know, success, you know, you have great operations, you know, like you have not meaning for like IT operations, but you must have great product development processes, great supply chain management, great, you know, sales and uh, you know, cash management. And, and the way you preserve greatness is to build processes and bureaucracies, you know, because bureaucracies are very uh, resilient, you can take out half the bureaucrats and, you know, those processes will still survive. Uh, and so when you're trying to do something disruptive, right, uh, like get the, in an electric car project, get engine and battery people to talk in a way they've never talked before, you really need to get them into a dedicated team away from the mothership. You need to free them from the existing kind of rules so they can get better outcomes. And so I think that same sort of pattern is exactly what's happening in the DevOps enterprise adoption, um, communities that you know, they're creating successes, uh, that are creating value. They're taking risks that, uh, uh, even though they have some air cover, I think these are the people who are really comfortable leading change, uh, selling change, you know, maybe even having enough guile to sort of hide capacity or hide these initiatives until they have a success. And then, you know, uh, they're being promoted, uh, because the top levels of managers see value in what they're doing and now want them to make an even larger contribution to the organization.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, so the, the the way that I think of DevOps um, most palpably from just from the engineering conversations I've had, and and I know some people in the DevOps community will uh, maybe disagree with this, but really the idea of the the continuous delivery pipeline and the automated testing that goes on in the in the continuous delivery pipeline, this to me seems like the cornerstone of how you get the engineering organization well-equipped to do fast experimentation because you have this battery of unit tests and or integration tests or whatever where people feel like they can comfortably experiment within their domain and they can push out code that will be decoupled from uh from the rest of the organization in a safe fashion and can gradually become integrated in an automated fashion um and so I guess I'm curious to what degree you agree with that. But I'm also curious, like, in these bigger organizations where they have well-established practices, they have well-established uh, technologies, and a lot of that technology is old and ancestral and perhaps black box-ish, how do you start to develop automated testing around that? Because, you know, you, you have these big piles of code that everybody is afraid to touch. How do you even start to go near that in in a, in a boots on the ground tactical fashion.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love uh, the book uh, dealing effectively with legacy code by, um, Oh gosh, Michael Feathers. Uh, Yeah, and he has a great definition of legacy code, right? It's any code that doesn't have automated testing, right? Which I think is such a a brilliant uh, definition.
0: That is a good definition. uh,
1: But before we go there, I mean, I I, I think you're you're right. You know, the notion that you know continuous integration, continuous testing, these uh, you know continuous deployment pipelines—they are a uh, a core capability um, and. You know, I, th- I think that the emergent pattern, you know, when we talk about these adoption patterns is whenever you have these pockets of greatness, uh, you know, the goal is how do you turn those pockets of greatness into the improvement of the global system, right? How do you um, enable hundreds or maybe even thousands of other teams to be able to replicate, you know, those know great outcomes and you know the whole notion of shared services i think is a great mechanism of that you know it's uh you know the idea that you can take this one jenkins pipeline right and you know be able to onboard other people in the team and you have this internal marketplace now working where the best tools win often competing with external vendors Uh, and i think you know the whole notion of you know platform engineering you know uh, the idea of ops engineers you know, working to create a platform to make developers productive. I think that re- I love that term platform engineering is such a great uh, way to describe kind of this internal service that uh you know, our job is as ops is not to open up is to is not to work tickets, right? It really is to create these capabilities that allow other teams to you know be productive. But I think, you know, uh, there are other patterns that I, I think are equally worthy of that, uh, even though they may sound, you know, far less uh exotic. I mean, I love what Jason Cox, uh, the director of systems engineering at Disney, has done. I mean, he has uh, you know fifty to you know, over fifty ops engineers that he embeds into the dev teams across the Disney enterprise. You know, so that's parks and rides. It could be studios, you know, back office, and, and so even though they aren't necessarily. Uh, creating shared services, even just putting those ops engineers into those teams helps those teams become productive as if they were at a Google or an Amazon. Uh, you know, so it's not, uh, you know, they're, they become totally aligned with the team goals. And so, you know, I just, I love that, right? Uh, John Allspot said something really, uh, well, has said many, many brilliant things, but one, one quote that he, uh, something he said that, gosh, I'm not even sure if it made it in the book, but it should be in there. He said, you know, if you have two teams competing, right, one of just developers and another team with developers but they have an ops person in there, he said, I would I would bet on the second team every time, right? Because, you know, uh that ops engineer, you know, can ask questions like, you know, what's you know, what are the what what is this architecture going to look like? You know, is it IO intensive? Is it CPU intensive? You know, what kind of database should we be thinking about? You know, which one, you know, sh- should we use existing services? Should we create a new one? Um, you know, the ability to ha- bring that expertise into, you know, even the earliest stages of a project. I mean, it's just, it was such a great way of articulating, you know, the value of ops, right? Not just in terms of creating a Jenkins pipeline or whatever, it's really about helping that team you know, win. Uh, and I just thought that was very exciting.
0: So, you know, I I have been at places where, um, you know, it feels like there's something that is like DevOps in place, and other others that do not. And uh, the, the difference is is so palpable. Like at Amazon, for example, the automation was so advanced, and the engineers were required to take such an amount of ownership. I would say it actually—it actually felt like more more like a no ops type of situation, um, like because the, the rate at which the organization moved, despite its size, was uh, was so amazing. And, and I've been at other places that moved quite slow, and getting changes out the door was quite tough. Um, and there was l- very little experimentation because the infrastructure and the culture just did not support that experimentation. And at this at this type of place, I didn't see how they would ever dig themselves out of that hole. It just felt like there was just, this you know, there was very little automated testing. I felt like we were constantly in maintenance mode. Um, I mean, I guess we're, you know, this is kind of like the same question that I just asked, but I mean, how, what are the most direct um, high impact things that a place like that can can move, can do to start getting, getting moving in the right direction. I mean, I guess this is, this is much of what the Phoenix project is all about.
1: Right. And hopefully something that we can address with more precision and specificity in the DevOps handbook. But I, I love, I love the way you described and set up that question, right? And it reminds me of like the goal of science. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Tom Longstaff at the, uh, software engineering organization, he said the goal of science is to, uh, explain the most amount of observable phenomena with the fewest number of principles, you know, confirm deeply held intuitions and reveal surprising insights. And I think, you know, by what the uh, the state of devops report has allowed us to do over the last 4 years is to answer more precisely, what are the precise conditions that allow us to have this kind of amazing dynamic of fast flow, you know, high level of innovation, high level of uh, of experimentation, you know, high employee satisfaction, you know, ability to win in the marketplace. Um, and so honestly, two ways, right? I think the technical practices and the cultural norms and the architecture, right, we know that it's, uh, you have to have some sort of loosely coupled architecture, as you alluded to, you have to have automated testing, everybody's got to be in version control, you have to have proactive monitoring, high trust cultural norms. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of useful to know, right? Because we can say those are the things that really do have the highest uh, predictors of performance. Uh, but you know, I I love the uh, you know kind of a, maybe a more qualitative way to answer that. That you know, it's uh, you know I think the goal of what we try to do when we do DevOps transformations is you know create these very tight feedback loops so people get the fastest feedback on their work, right? So they can work independently. And they don't have to coordinate with, you know, say, two thousand other developers to get one change into production. Uh, and maybe one of my biggest learnings—I'll uh, share with you my three biggest learnings that really helped me—that uh, just really framed kind of these big aha moments uh, in the process of uh, the creation of the DevOps Handbook. One is, it turns out, like this one measure of code deployment lead time—you know, how quickly can we go from a change committed to version control through test. Through deployment so it's actually running in production and so customers are getting value it looks like a tactical measure because you could say that's what the ops people do but it's actually i think one of the most strategic measures that any technology organization has because it simultaneously predicts the effectiveness effectiveness of the testing and operations value stream so that's to the right of code commit you could say in the value stream but it also predicts how quickly we can give feedback to design and development and so, like, if, if I, as a developer, I, I put something into version control, but only find out about the error six or nine months later during integration testing, then, you know, the, the link between cause and effect have been basically lost, right? And my ability to learn as a developer from that mistake has vanished, right? So it's even, it's becomes very hard to fix, but it becomes really hard to take those learning and integrate that into the next time I do work. Um, And and it also gates how quickly we can get feedback from customers, right? If we want rapid experimentation, you know, we need to be able to iterate within, you know, days or hours, you know, being able to iterate in months or quarters is almost uh, meaningless, right? Or at least anyone who can iterate faster is going to win. So that the the one aha moment is, you know, uh, that the the strategic importance of code deployment lead time. Uh, I think the second Kind of big aha moment is is uh, that all those performance measures I talk about deployment frequency, lead time, change success rate, mean time to repair, organizational performance, security, uh, and it can all be and even the presence of technical practices and cultural norms they can all be predicted with one question, uh, and that question is on a scale of one to seven. How much do we fear deploying changes? Right. So one is we have no fear of deploying changes. We do it all the time. <laughs> Seven is we have such fear of doing deployments that we don't do it ever. <laughs> and how organizations answer that question predicts performance and practices. So uh, you know I, I think it kind of those two things really kind of were big aha moments for me because it really kind of just dramatically shaped how simple uh, you know the, kind of the true north of the of these hmm. transformations.
0: If an organization is doing DevOps really, really well, like these these companies that we see as like the beacons of DevOps, whether it's Netflix or Google or Amazon or whatever, does it asymptote towards something that we might call no ops, where there's you know you you know is the goal of a good DevOps uh, team to automate everything that you can so that there are you know, automate away the responsibilities of the operations team?
1: Yeah, I think there's really two poles. I I I think the answer is no, right? I mean, I think there's really two poles of this. And, you know, by the book, we can describe organizations in one of typically three um, modalities. One is, you know, market orientations. So that's you know when we have small cross-functional teams who can all, you know, create value for the customer without having to, you know, coordinate with the mothership, right? And so... Um, you know, in the broader kind of industry, you know, that would be when we have sales, marketing, engineering, kind of supporting specific customer segments. Uh, and that's really op- designed to optimize for, you know, time to market. On the other extreme, we have functional orientation. So that's when we often we're trying to optimize for expertise or for cost. And that's when we have, you know, uh, the kind of the silos where we put all the DBAs in one place, all the storage people in another place, all the network engineering people in another place. And, uh, you know, I think we do that when we want to, uh, optimize for, uh, experience. So like, you know, ordnance people hang out with ordnance people on an aircraft carrier and, you know, the aviation people hang out in another place and, you know, uh, the reactor people hang out in another place. Um, but the downside is often, you know, to escalate things, you have to escalate three levels up. And then three levels down, right? Because there's no points of connection. And then you have kind of matrix orientation in the middle. And I think with uh, DevOps, it really is what makes it so breathtaking is that in many organizations, it is this, you know, extreme shift from, uh, you know, functional orientation where even Dev, Test, and Ops have all been outsourced to to different people to, you know, we're insourcing it, we're creating these small cross-functional teams. So the Amazon the uh, Netflix model, I think that's very much, you know, dev and ops, you build it, you run it, every service, you know, uh, they're responsible for feature delivery and uh, service delivery. But, you know, on, on the other side, on functional orientation, um, you know, there are some exemplars like Etsy, like Google, like Facebook, they have uh, a central ops organization. And, and so you can do it both ways. And as the, as Mike Rother said, from Toyota Kata, it is not the organizational chart or the organizational design that predicts outcomes. It really is how do these groups work together. By the way, one of my favorite stories um that we talk about in the DevOps handbook as an example of this is uh, Google, uh Ben Trainer, the VP of SREs. He has thirteen hundred SREs reporting into him. So they control is one hiring pipeline. Uh they're responsible for the quality of every SRE. And then they get embedded into, you know, the uh teams across the Google Enterprise. You know, GitHub uh, centralized operations, um, Etsy centralized operations. So I think there are uh, plenty of valid examples of how you can do it, and it's not just, and it's certainly not no ops. I think even the uh, the Netflix people and Adrian Cockcroft would say, you know, it's not no ops. It's it's platform as a service, right? We still have ops. So even Netflix, right? Uh, you know, they had this role called a crisis manager where uh, it would actually rotate through um, dev managers. Uh, So the person who would be responsible for kind of the centralization of the incident response function. And what they found was that the problem was that, you know, by the time the role rotated back to a dev manager, they probably forgot everything they had learned since the last time they were on rotation. And so they said, look, this is ridiculous. This is a core capability that the organization needs. You know, we're going to have a full-time you know, crisis manager position, and that's going to be owned, you know, kind of in the ops group, right? So even at Netflix, it's not quite as uh, cut and dry as one might think.
0: So, you know, we're talking here about older organizations, more developed organizations. There are probably people listening who are at a startup or they're in the very early days or they're even just thinking about starting a company and they want to get the org structure right, the culture right, so that they have the right practices in place to be able to move fast and have decoupled teams and all the things that we like about DevOps. So, what are the steps to take to start off right? You know, in contrast to the discussion about the well-developed enterprise, what are the things that you start out doing right?
1: Oh yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think uh, my friend John Willis, another co-author in the DevOps Handbook. I mean, he said kind of every startup or kind of successful startup kind of kind of gets uh, is probably very aligned with DevOps in the beginning, just because. You know when your survival is at stake right uh, you're gonna have very few people who say it's not my job right it's uh whether it's in the code or in the environment you know uh, if it's 2am you know ultimately you know in order if this is the difference between the company surviving and not surviving or making it another month <laughs> right because uh, you know there's so little cash in the bank you know i, I think that really does kind of create that uh, high pressure environment high stakes environment where it the best of, kind of the best we get, of so we organize ourselves to get those best outcomes. You know, I think the question that becomes, you know, as we grow, um, you know, as you get to four or five, six teams, uh, you know, development teams or feature teams, I should call them, and, you know, a uh, growing need for infrastructure, then, you know, I think kind of the, uh, we need to specialize, we need to, uh, you know, have these teams have their own roadmaps. And then I think it does get, you know, more complicated. And by the way, I think there's so many things about this that I don't know. I mean, for example, uh, like when do you split up teams? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, right? When, uh, you know, that, when, at one point, does it make sense to actually have a separate operations group, uh, you know, that has its own, uh, you know, roadmap where they don't have to, where we can buffer the development teams, you know, from the operational needs? I, I don't know. In fact, I think there's so many ways, you know, uh, to do this, Um But, uh, you know, I I think the emergent pattern is, you know, there are some simple things that we can do, you know, to, to, to go get from screwed up to great. Um, you know, the notion of, you know, always, Having some sort of communication channel, right, where uh, you know a developer doesn't have to open up a ticket to talk to an ops person, right? Instead, you know, they can go to that person. Uh, they can, you know, we have a chat room where we can always, uh, you know, get the help that we need. Uh, you know, I, I love that. You know, the the notion of shared goals, the, the notion of developers are put on page rotation just like developers, right? Uh, in fact, one of the studies I love in the, you know, again in the DevOps Handbook was a uh, Facebook two thousand eight. Uh, there was a story about. Uh, there was this rule where, uh, in a meeting, you know you can only have your laptop open if there's a live seven one incident. And in this group of ten ops engineers, no one could close their laptop. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> that led to this very decisive moment where uh, essentially they said, uh, "We're going to put our developers and our architects on page rotation. Oh, and, and the dev managers on page rotation, just because." we need them to see the downstream effects of decisions they make in their daily work. And, you know, that in and of itself, you know, created, uh, you know, some shared goals that just didn't exist before. And so it's not about punishing developers. It's really about, uh, making sure that developers don't have this illusion that, you know, once I commit my code and close the, uh, uh, feature ticket in JIRA that I'm done. (laughs) No, no, it's uh it doesn't end there. Right. It's like the free puppy. It's, uh, the custodianship of that puppy is probably going to be uh, much larger in the operation and maintenance phase than it is in the development phase. Um, So
0: another one interesting thing, um, Lee Atchison was on the show a while ago. He he was uh, an architect at Amazon, and then he he's worked at New Relic for many years at this point. And he said that Chaos Monkey is the first service that you should stand up if you start a new company. Uh, Chaos Monkey, obviously, the thing that shuts down your servers at random. What do you think about that idea?
1: Oh, I I you know I I love that pattern. Right? It's it's so great because um, you know, if we were to zoom out a little bit and look at so. Sort of, DevOps is a subset of dynamic learning organizations. And so dynamic learning organizations describe, uh, you know, organizations like the Toyota um, and its suppliers. It's the engine design team at Pratt & Whitney. Uh, it's the U.S. Naval Reactor Corps, uh, responsible for 3,500 hours of accident-free nuclear reactions for U.S. Navy ships at sea. You know, there's these, uh, one of the observations that Dr. Steven Spear uh, made, uh, I took out his workshop at MIT. He wrote a great book called The High Velocity Edge. He said, you know, when you inject, when, when, when you are constantly injecting pressure into daily work, right? Like when you have this true north goal of getting to single piece flow or no inventory or, uh, zero safety accidents or no fatalities, no near misses, you know, what it does is it, uh, it, put continual tension in the system that forces the system to continually improve. And, you know, Mike Rother, you know, who wrote the book Toyota Kata, he said, you know, the, in the there is no, there is no, uh, he called it the PDCA wedge, right? Uh, there's this kind of a notion in the lean community for many years that, you know, if you improve something, you sort of ratchet up the, the process effectiveness. And he said that actually is an illusion. He actually described how on the manufacturing plant for floor, they reduced the number of workers at a workstation uh, um, uh, from eight people to uh, five. And he said over two months of observation, we actually got to see how five people then became six, then seven, and then reverted back to eight. <laughs> he said without that constant improvement, right – uh it's not stasis, is actually entropy, right? Things actually degrade to a much, you know, less efficient state. And so what Chaos Monkey represents, I think, is that kind of uh another example of how do you force relentless improvement into the system. Um I was I was gonna oh oh and I think just to I think one of the most breathtaking examples of this, uh, in fact let me think, I gotta look at the index of the DevOps handbook. Oh, gotta reach it. You know, there was a, there was a famous uh fire of uh, in in japan at a toyota plant that caused uh i think it was like a specific brake pad sensor uh for toyota it was it it was burned to the ground right and wall street journal wrote uh you know because of how lean their supply chain is you know toyota might not have cars to sell and we're basically saying this could be a uh, existential event for them you know uh that you know the the entire toyota uh organization uh, might be put out of business or at least gravely wounded but it turns out that you know they were able to mobilize their entire supplier network uh, to uh, actually reproduce these parts. Uh, they had you know they were already in the practice of working with each other. They shared the plans, um, and uh, they were actually resumed some level of manufacturing capabilities for this very critical part. You know within days. <laughs> and so yeah, there's a, a quote that is uh, from uh, from uh, Stephen Spear's book that said, "When crisis." when problem solving is a part of everyone's daily work, what appears to be a crisis for everybody else is just another day, right? And I think, you know, what Chaos Monkey represents is, you know, how do we create the conditions where we are always constantly learning, right? Uh, we are deliberately injecting faults in this production environment. And so when, uh, you know, bad things do happen that are catastrophic to everybody else, you know, Netflix was a strange island of calm, right? Just like, the Toyota uh, organization, you know, uh, not to say that they weren't busy and there weren't tons of urgent work, but they would manage to survive. I think without the, uh, uh, without the absolute uh, brink of existential failure that would have happened to almost every other car manufacturer.
0: So we've talked about well-developed organizations. We've talked about earlier organizations, startups. What about? organizations that are scaling organizations that are scaling what are the things that they can do to avoid so you talk in the book you talk about the downward spiral that can lead to an organization breaking so i i want to get an idea for what are the things that are the signs that an organization might be moving towards a downward spiral and what are the typical ways you can avoid that type of downward spiral yeah, how you can avoid getting into the the trough of despair uh, it, it that, that that is obviously harder to dig out of than than something where you you prevent it early on earlier on yeah um, yeah so
1: this is all about part three um, or actually the third way right uh, so the first way is all about flow left to right in the value stream the second way is all about feedback right to left in the value stream and the third way is like what are all the practices that enable, Continuous innovation, continuous learning, and
0: sorry, real quick, do you want to define the value stream for people who don't? Know oh yeah. Uh,
1: so the value stream is, you know, it's all the sequence of steps required to actually deliver value to the customer. So it starts when you know there's a signal of demand, right? New feature, uh, you know, outage, you know, outage occurs, right? To actually, uh, the customer saying, you know, we have what we need, and so the value stream in our world often, you know, spans from product owners typically through development, through some sort of test deployment, and ultimately is running in production. And so, you know, the third way is really kind of across that entire value stream, all the stakeholders, how, how do we um, always create the practices so we're continually learning and improving? And so, uh, you know, I, I think when there are pockets of greatness, what are the mechanisms that allow the entire organization to benefit? I think one of them is certainly the notion of, of uh, shared services, you know, this notion that, you know, we have – um, a, we have maybe a single source code repository that represents the collective knowledge and expertise of the entire organization. Um, you know, we have, uh, platforms, you know, that represent, you know, the best operational thinking and security thinking, right? So that expertise is not in our heads, but it's actually in, uh, a platform we can just, uh, get self-service. Uh, there's, uh, practices like, um, uh, uh, you know, the Chaos Monkey. Uh, and and game days, right? Those are specific exercises we do to uh, make sure that uh, we are learning about how to build reliable software uh, in ways besides actually having a uh, catastrophic outage. Um, You know, improvement blitzes like uh, hack days, this notion of dedicated time for improvement. I mean, I love this notion where, you know, every day, uh, you know, uh, one day a month, one day a quarter, you know, that people can work on whatever they want. They self-organize into teams. They can work on whatever they want, but it can't be a feature, right? It has to be something improvement related. It's not about new ideas of trying to be innovative. This is about solving problems that we are working around right now. And, and some of the greatest, you know, technical breakthroughs in our field, right? The, you know, like uh, the hip hop compiler, uh, you know, that was built at Facebook, you know, the uh, so many things were actually built in hack days. Um mm-hmm.
0: Now, do do you do that kind of stuff even when there is a fire going on?
1: Oh <laughs> no, I think that would be a poor day uh, for that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, the the notion that you know uh, if there are no uh, all the people who aren't working a live site outage, hey, look, uh, I this this philosophy of improvement of daily work is actually more important. Than daily work itself, right? I think that's hard to dispute because we see what happens when we just prioritize around daily work. You know, it's improvement of daily work that's actually more important than daily work itself. So
0: I, I agree with that in, in many situations, but there are also a lot of companies where the, the pace of the company feels so real time that it's always in panic mode. Like – uh, whether you're, you know, uh, trading something, or, uh, or I don't know, you're at, you're at an energy company, or so. I mean, the, the places where I've worked, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a negative context, but there's sometimes you, there's just like this constant sense of panic because uh, customers have needs, or there's, you know, something, there's some deadline. I mean, how do you step outside of that constant panic, that constant? Pressure and do some sort of experimentation, whether that experimentation is a feature or it is some sort of uh, long term maintenance.
1: Yeah, you know, one of my favorite specific practices around this is the notion of this comes from Marty Kagan. He wrote this phenomenal book called Inspired, and he's trained a generation of product owners on how to build great products. And in his book, he says every product owner should take 20% of all DevOps cycles off the table, right? He would say, they're not those cycles are not there for you to spend. They are there for dev and ops to use however they best see fit to fix problematic areas of the code or in the environment or to automate or to improve. Right. And you know, he learned that uh that lesson when he was at eBay. He was a VP of product management at eBay for uh two years, during the early two thousands and i think his key lesson was that if you don't pay this 20% tax you're doomed to pay this 100% tax because he didn't get to ship a new feature for 2 years because everybody was uh you know just trying to keep the site up and and so he said the only way that you can prevent that downward spiral is that you have to pay down technical debt as you go um i love this example that's described in the book um in the devops handbook about linkedin right uh it's, it was called project inversion where i think it was 3 months after they went public um in 2009 um uh you know uh, kevin scott the vp of engineering you know despite all the promises made to the public markets said we it has become so dangerous to deploy code that we cannot deploy code any longer and so they had a feature freeze for 60 days and and so you know uh you know, I, th- I think the goal is how do you fix problems as you go so that we don't end up in a situation like eBay in the early 2000s or LinkedIn, you know, three months after they went public. Um, and so yeah, I think the responsible business managers, the responsible leaders will say, you know, we know how to fix this, right? And maybe uh, they'll even say, we don't need permission from anybody as a leader. My job is to do these sort of experiments and I will hide capacity if I need to, uh, because I know what's best for the organization, both for its survival as well as its ability to succeed and win in the marketplace
0: all right well gene kim uh author of the devops handbook author of the phoenix project thanks for coming on the show hey thank you so
1: much and by the way in the show notes i'll make sure that everyone gets uh uh instructions on how to download a 140 page free excerpt of the book uh and so uh I'm, i hope that uh, that is of value to uh, everybody who reads it thank you so much jeff
0: Wonderful, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your kind words and your, your feedback on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, delighted to be here. Thank you again.
0: Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at se daily. That's s y m p h o n o dot com slash s e daily. Thanks again, Symphono.
1: Wow.